welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Vanya Apkarian. He's a professor of neuroscience and director of the Center for Translational Pain Research at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago. He's been a neuroscience researcher for over three decades and has done groundbreaking research in chronic pain and opiate addiction related to chronic pain. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Um, Vani, um, welcome to the show. It's nice for you. I know you're incredibly busy, so I really appreciate you being here. And I'm going to introduce Dr. Epkarian from my perspective, and he's going to tell you actually who he really is. But from my perspective, um, I had chronic pain myself, as you know, for 15 years. I did not know what was going on. And eventually, Dr. Epkarian's work was a pivotal factor in my understanding chronic pain in that chronic pain is now acknowledged by the American Chronic Pain Association that it is a neurological diagnosis having very, very little to do with structure, even though structure can start the process. Once you develop chronic pain, um, it's a neurological problem with many different facets to it. So Dr. Kieran has a lab in Chicago with, uh, he'll describe this in a little bit more detail, but we he's considered sort of the, I use the word godfather of chronic pain research because his diligence and just looking at the data, being very empirical about it has really changed the game for many, many people that have suffered endlessly from chronic pain that people have been told that it's basically, quote, imaginary. So Vanya, thank you for being on the program and I'm excited to have you here. Thank you and thank you for having me. And I'm happy to discuss my favorite topic <laughs> again. So, so I would like if you just start out with, I mean, your work is impressive. I'm just curious, let us know where your lab is, how many people are working there. Um, yeah. I'm just curious how many papers you've written and how many you're writing a month right now. It's pretty remarkable. Okay. All right. Well, I don't want to brag too much, but you can please brag. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, I, my lab is located in, at Northwestern University in the Department of uh, Physiology. We just got renamed into a Department of Neuroscience. I'm faculty in the anesthesia department and PMNR department at, at the same time. I'm also currently the director of a Center for Translational Pain Research. This is a center of research excellence designated by NIH. And we are literally uh, spearheading the studies about the interface between chronic pain and opiate, opiate use, opiate dependence, and their, and their interaction, uh, both in human and animal studies. So my lab is not very large, but it is, it is very extended in a sense that we work with a large group of other scientists at the same time. Uh, uh, and we do, uh, at, at the same time, both human and animal studies. Uh, our inspiration for all of our research comes from the patient. The pa we are patient-centric. We study the brain properties of people with different types of chronic pain, with different manipulations of their chronic pain. And the results we see in those patients then become direct hypotheses that we can then mechanistically start in, you know, studying them in animal models. Now that uh, uh, 
paradigm has been successful for us and it's relatively simple. The idea is if we want to understand what the uh, subject suffers from, we need to look at the subject uh, as opposed to start from an animal model, which may or may not, may not be relevant to the condition. Uh, and again, this cycle has been really exciting for us in a, in a sense, uh, we, we are about, my core lab is about six or seven people, but again, there are at least five or six other research laboratories that work directly with us within the umbrella of our center. Each one of them has at least six or seven scientists in them. So you can see that we mushroom very quickly into a, a really uh, highly collaborative, cooperative, uh, intellectually really vibrant uh, environment where we can ask, um, you know, uh, lots of uh, exciting questions. Um, how many, I'm just curious, how many papers have you published? I don't know the exact number, unfortunately. I think it's around 240 or so, something in that range. Uh, we, I don't know, this week, I think we're submitting three new papers for publication. We publish papers and we're excited about the science. In a way, uh, uh, I, I don't really count the, the papers. I count, I tell my students, we, if we're writing a paper, the paper should change the way people think about the world. So that's our criteria for publishing papers. And, and, and yes, we're also very rigorous and we, tend, we, try to, we try to be genuine to the data and really be critical about what we try to do. In a sense, uh, I think uh, good quality science can help everybody. Uh, and and cook and make the field move forward. So just to say one more thing about your laboratory, the way you do things, because you are an engineer, correct? Yeah, I'm an electrical engineer. You know, in, in training originally, and and in a, in many ways, I'm a computational neuroscientist. I I love mo models. I love mathematical, you know, concepts, and I would like to put our research within those those frames in a way. Uh, for example, we're just sending out a paper as to what, how to measure pain from okay. a theoretical viewpoint as it's statistical properties of how, what is a measurement in a way. You know, there are fundamental questions that really are fun to, to address and they actually give us uh, more rigorous insight into how to do these things. So I have a couple of medical school classmates that were electrical engineers, and I've known a few other ones, and your brains live in a different orbit. <laughs> you just think differently. So it's very fascinating. So I'm always, um, I, I spent one week in engineering physics in college and realized if I stayed in that class, I would not go to medical school. I mean, I, I, I mean uh, for me, this is all uh, great fun. And my team is a very diverse group of students. I mean, there are mathematicians in, in my team, there are physicists in my team, uh, psychologists, and of course, clinicians as well. So, so uh, it's, it's a very disoriented, disorganized system. And in that sense, it has high dimensional information in it. And that's how we, one, one would hope to make progress. So what Bonnie's been able to do, which we were, we were very impressed with when he came to Seattle a couple of years ago, is that he's able to look at all this disparate data and just cut right down to what it's really saying. And as you pointed out, you're paid to think. And so what's happened, the papers he has published are high quality. 
And the reason, the thing I want to really nail down in this podcast is that in the clinical medical world, if you can't see something on, a, on an anatomic imaging study, <clears throat> the pain doesn't exist. And, but the problem is only five to 10% of the time do we find a structural explanation for the pain. And then what happens in medicine, we're actually trained this way. Well, this may, might be psychological or the person doesn't have a high pain tolerance. They must be wimps. <clears throat> and it's shown that when you're not believed, you don't do very well. People, physicians don't believe people in chronic pain are actually hurting. But I want to finish with saying that there's one paper, a couple papers actually have documented the impact of suffering from chronic pain is equal or is the equivalent of having terminal cancer. But they actually, the papers I looked at when I read them, it's actually worse than having terminal cancer because at least with terminal cancer, you know the diagnosis. So what's been a huge contribution with your laboratory being very objective about it is that you can look at the people, you can look at the brains of people suffering from chronic pain and actually see the activity of what's causing the misery. Because being in chronic pain is truly miserable. <clears throat> it's horrible. I was in chronic pain myself for 15 years. And when nobody believes you and doesn't treat it effectively, it gets way, way worse because people lose hope. So I'm curious, going back where you, you're an electrical engineer, how did you end up looking at chronic pain? Yeah, well, I mean, so to me, pain is an excuse to look at perception. I'm, I'm, in a, I'm a romantic about understanding the brain. I want to understand how neuronal connections, neuronal activity, electrical activity in the brain turns into subjectivity. That's my passion in life. That's always been my excitement about doing brain science. Uh, uh, from the first day I heard the electrical activity of a neuron, I decided this is what I want to do. Wow. And I switched from electrical engineering to, to brain engineering in a sense kind of thing. So uh, I'm definitely interested in what is perception from a, from a brain neuroscience viewpoint. Now, uh, pain ends up actually a really exciting concept just from a, from a conceptual viewpoint because it is purely subjective, right? And philosophers have been writing about it for many, many, many years in that my pain and you pain, we have no idea how similar they are or not. For example, it is what you tell me that you have and I have no, no way to see what your pain is. Uh, and so we end up with this uh, paradoxes that we cannot resolve. Um, I, of course, at the same time, pain is a huge human toll, right? Especially when it comes to chronic pain. Uh, and you know, nowadays, the World Health Organization, the US National Institute of Health, they all are cognizant of the toll of chronic pain on society. And it is somewhere around 20% of the world population suffers from chronic pain. Yet, we do not have a single drug treatment that's scientifically validated to relieve the condition. We don't have any surgical treatments that are scientifically validated to treat the condition. In fact, we don't have any treatments that are scientifically validated to date that would be effective in treating these patients. So <clears throat> uh, I was, uh, in my younger days, I was doing brain electrophysiological recordings in, from the spinal cord, the thalamus, the cortex of anesthetized animals trying to study pain. And you can see what an oxymoron that is, right? Here I have an anesthetized uh, 
organism and I'm trying to understand, you know, pain perception. So the first time, the inkling that we had that in fact, one could start using new technologies to look inside of the brain for people in pain, that was a fantastic sort of uh, uh, excitement for me. In fact, I literally, we uh, at the time, I went to the dean at, at the medical school and I said, we need to get one of these machines. This was the first paper that was published on the topic. Within six months of that paper, we were trying to do the same thing, uh, looking at brain activity, specifically for pain in humans. And the advantage of course is when you do the same study that we were doing in the anesthetized animal in a human being, now the human being says, yes, what you did to me was painful. And that's fantastic. That's for the first time an actual subjectivity being transformed into some objective brain markers of perception. So that, uh, uh, that was something that I thought was very exciting and I continue to be excited with it. And this is now more than 30 years ago that we started this, this, uh, this path of actually looking inside the brain as to what constitutes pain perception. So of so course- can you, explain, can you explain to the audience really briefly what a functional MRI scan is? So a functional MRI scan is essentially looking at, uh, at the brain in, a, in the magnetic field. You, you, we put the brain in a high, very high uh, uh, magnitude magnetic field. And within that magnetic field, now when there is blood moving in, in anywhere, you can see how that blood is changing in its magnetization because it's exchanging you know, uh, oxygenated versus deoxygenated blood locally. And that those small changes in the magnetization locally are now detected with functional MRI as being proportional to neuronal activity. So in a way, all of a sudden we can identify neuronal activity in the brain completely non-invasively by simply someone lying in a, in a, in a, in the scanner and uh, and looking at tiny tiny changes in mag in local magnetic fields and those magnetic fields can be now translated into perceptual correlates in a sense right so just for the audience to be really clear which is subjective pain i mean there's nothing that we can measure that tells us this pain is actually here and is beautiful because he's taking this experience of pain and actually can see the activity in different parts of the brain. So I'll just say state an obvious comment is that the brains of people in chronic pain are different than people that are not in chronic pain. Well, in, in many different ways. And so right. what, what I was describing was functional MRI. Functional MRI specifically is looking at, at correlates, blood correlates of neuronal activity. So that's why we call it functional. Now, MRI can be used in multiple modalities. One very simple uh, modality is looking at the structure of the brain. And so then there you are simply looking at, uh, you know, how much, uh, what the shape of the brain is, how much of the brain has, has water in it. Those are the ventricles how much of the brain has axons in it. Those are the connections from brain, one brain area to the other, and how much of the brain has gray matter in it. These are the neurons in the brain. So one could look at the anatomy of the brain, 
by simply looking at these contrasts of these regional densities. One could look at function as to the, the amount of local fluctuations of magnetization. One could look at uh, uh, also white matter tracks, the connections of one area to the other, again, by another variant of, of structural imaging. And also, you could also look at how the brain is communicating with, with different areas in a sense that if one brain area, the local blood flow correlates to another blood, local blood flow, then there's information exchange between them. So we can in fact construct networks of connectivity of how the brain is, is exchanging information as well. So those are all the different modalities of, of brain imaging that, that we can do nowadays. So I want to finish up this part of the podcast with two questions. And then in the second podcast, I want to talk about the other various disease entities, including the opioid research that you're doing. But um, there's this paper doctor, by Dr. Hashmi that talks about how the brain in about six or 12 months shifts from the, with chronic low back pain, that the activity of the brain shifts from the nociceptive or pain centers into the emotional centers. Um, so you have the same pain, but a different driver. Um, could you comment on that paper for me for a second? Because that's been a big one for me. Yes, well, that's, that's one of our crazy uh, sort of studies that you know, at the time when we, when we in fact submitted a grant proposal on the subject and we got funded for it, we were lucky because the reviewers did not really ask us how we were going even to analyze the data because we had no idea how to do it. But the idea, but the general idea is kind of simple. We bring in subjects who have an early, early episode of back pain, let's say for a few weeks to a few months, we look at their brain activity. And then we continue to do this over many, many, many months from, in fact, we've done it up to three years. Now, uh, and in, in this, uh, and the way we designed the study was that people who enter into the study, all of them have approximately the same uh, amount, the same duration of back pain, how many months, and it's a few months, all of them have only a few months of back pain and the same intensity of back pain. So their back pain is about the same amount. It's all around, they all start with a pain of about five out of 10, an average amount of pain by design. So that at the end, so in a sense, we are normalizing the population so that at the start of the study, uh, approximately they all have about the same amount of damage, for example, even in the back, in a sense, one could assume that given the both the duration and the intensity being equivalent. Now, over the next span of a year, uh, and we were all very lucky that this actually happened, we have no control over these subjects, about 50% of them show exactly the same amount of pain. Their pain has not changed. It hasn't gone up or it has not gone down. The other 50% of the patients, their pain is continuously going down. So in a sense, we have identified a bifurcation of this population. One group is staying at the same level. So they are becoming chronic pain patients, right? They mm -hmm. started with an acute subacute pain, but their pain is not changing. So they're becoming chronic pain patients. The other group, they're recovering. 
the pain is going away. In fact, in, in many of them, the pain is essentially down to zero one year later. Now, if we then ask the people to tell us how their pain is changing, we can then relate that change in their brain, in their process. So here's another thing that I guess that paper is actually quite fun and, and illustrates in a sense that if you ask any back pain patient to tell me how much pain they have, they'll give me a number. Um, now, if I ask the same question one minute later, they'll give me another, a different number. I ask it again one minute later, they're going to give me a different number. In a sense that the pain is continuously, constantly fluctuating, okay? And this is something we have, we have studied and analyzed and modeled, in fact. So these fluctuations, you can start modeling. These are now, you know, I can collect these numbers and make, you know, equations behind them. You know, I'm a stupid, you know, scientist. That's all I want to do in life. Um, but uh, as a result, uh, simply having subjects continuously rate their pain for 10 minutes gives me a specific subject-specific signature of their pain for those 10 minutes. Now I can use that information to say what brain activity is related to that perception. Okay, right. and so now this is a unique signature of the experience of that pain over those 10 minutes. And this is how we identify brain activity in patients. Right. And so when we do that, do this type of study in this population of subjects at the subacute pain level, all these people show standard brain activity for acute pain in a sense that the activity of the brain is similar to pinching the skin, for example, or putting your finger in, you know, in the fire. So it's all the brain areas that have to do with acute pain perception, somatic representation in a sense, that's consistent with the perception that they have. We're, we're what we call nociceptive pain. We could call it acute nociceptive pain, yes. Right, okay. And now, if we look at the same experimental design, the same question, the same subjects, one year later, the people where, they, where pain is going away, in fact, show that their pain is going away. And in fact, the signal in the brain is continuously decreasing and we don't see any more signal. Of course, some of them still have some, but there's not enough signal for us to have statistical you know, confidence of where the signal is. Essentially, what we demonstrate is that when the subject says my pain is going away, in fact, in the brain, I cannot find any activity anymore, which is assuring. Well, that's, I mean, that's not, I mean, that fact in itself correlating this brain activity with diminishing pain is remarkable. Right. So that's at least makes sense. And it gives us some confidence about what we're doing. Now, if we look at the subjects where the pain has not changed at all, right? Their intensity of the pain has stayed exactly the same. And now we look at this brain activity over this period of about a year. By the end of the year, the brain activity has completely shifted. It's in completely different brain areas. And in a sense, in the scale of the universe of the brain, it has moved from, the, from planet Earth to outside of the Milky Way into a completely massively different area. And basically, as you already gave the clue, it has basically engaging now 
all the brain areas that have to do with self-referential thinking, emotional uh, exaggeration, uh, things, all, all of these brain circuits that we know that have to do with emotions. And but you can, but, you can, but see, here's the key to the audience. You can see it. In other words, the pain is there. So the people that have resolved the pain, the pain is gone. The brain activity is normal. And then when the pain, so these are, so my impression was with all the patients who developed chronic pain, the brain activity actually shifted and it, it covered a much larger area, right? Well, no, no, no. The area is not any larger. The area is just different. different. So in a, in, a, in a sense, regions that were active in the, in originally are not active anymore. So the acute pain representation is diminished. We can't right. say that it's diminished. We cannot say it's, it's completely gone. Uh, while brain areas that were not involved in a sense that it was kind of uh, has 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 come up and those are essentially brain regions that have to do with emotional self-assessment in a sense the idea here is that the subject is now considering this pain as their own it's owned it's not from the outside okay it's not it's not a sensory representation it's it's, emo, it's self emotional state kind of thing so in other words, in simplistic terms, you have a same pain, but a different driver. Is that a first statement? The driver, I not know. I think it's the interpretation that has changed. It's the internal brain interpretation of that information. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so the brain now says, ah, you know, this, this information bothers me. I don't like it. It is in, inside of my body. Uh, I I need to cope with it. I'm suffering with it. Those are all the things that have come that were not obvious initially. Let's say. But the- now, again, this is an exaggeration. I'm I'm philosophizing on a picture of the brain, obviously. Right. right. Yeah. But the key the key issue is that every person who had chronic pain had brain activity that correlated with that chronic pain. Correct. I mean, well, did, you, did you have some? Did you ever have anybody with chronic pain that didn't have some of that activity? Well, okay. So again, you know, these are hard experiments. Uh, I cannot identify these on an individual subject. On a group right. average level, this is what's happening. I see. Okay. So, so again, I don't want to give the wrong message. I'm sorry. I'm conservative about the science. I need to be precise. That's why no, we, no, we, I, we do we do these things. Uh, and so I do not know at an individual level how much the shift is more or less. Right. Uh, and, but, but, and, and these are very hard studies that have taken us many, many years to even do them. So it's, you know, one can ask many, many questions, but it's very hard to get all the answers, yeah? But the, but the bottom line is that when you have chronic pain, you're not making it up. You can actually see it on brain activity. Is that a first yeah. There's no question that the chronic pain has many, many signatures in the brain. We are, this is only one of the signatures. This is, remember, this is specifically the, the circuitry that is involved in the fluctuations of their pain for those 10 minutes during the brain scan. Right. Now, there are many other things that happen in these brains of these subjects that we, we have identified as well, which we haven't talked about. So, and... And none of these uh, uh, are consistent with the idea that uh, that's something that's made up, confabulated. 
there right. is there is objective data that that identifies the the person suffering with the condition. Yes. Right. And, and Vania, we have to stop this part of the podcast. I could talk to this about this for a long time. But um, I mean, my role is that, as you know, that very little of your incredible work in your lab's work, incredible work is actually made it into mainstream medicine. It just hasn't made it there. So I actually quit my surgical practice, as you know, to do this because in spine surgery, we're operating on chronic pain, which does not have a structural basis. In fact, we're operating on, on anatomy that's been proven not to be a source of acute pain. Uh, I'm sorry, not to be a source of chronic pain. And so we're hurting people. The success rate of a spine fusion for back pain is about 20%. It is dismal. And then the downside is horrible. But that's a different topic. So what I want to finish up this really quickly is that there are object, there are findings in the brain that document that there's activity that's there consistent with people suffering chronic pain. And I believe it is Dr. Mansour in your lab. Is that his? Not, your not a, he, he was. Yeah. Okay. So not, he has a paper that he has a comment that I do quote a lot is that chronic pain is basically defined as an embedded memory that becomes connected with more and more life experiences and the memory cannot be erased. And so he wrote a review paper um, that I think he was with your lab at the time. I think your name's on the paper. Yes, that basically yes. defined it. And now the yes, American- that's, that's one of my sentences you're quoting, yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> so that's now the American Chronic Pain. Finally, American Chronic Pain Association has finally acknowledged that chronic pain is a neurological disorder. That means there's yeah. brain activity that's not normal in the presence of chronic pain. Now, so- we could unpack that that and as um, i'm very happy that this is taken this has happened i'm not i was not even aware that this is now accepted and yeah. i i should you should send me that a reference to that and i should use it it would be nice yeah. for me to take credit actually it's the iasap american current anyway it's the this a national official oh. group iasp right it's the international pain yeah. society yes yeah. Okay, that's fantastic. They're good friends and they're finally listening to me. That's wonderful. Um, but uh, so the fact that chronic pain is a neurological condition, in fact, has more evidence to it than simply that the brain activity has shifted from sensory regions to emotional areas. Right. And we can, we, can, we can do that probably in the next, in the next segment. Um, uh, but 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 I, I, I think the, the evidence is quite compelling. Yeah. So anyway, Vanya, thank you very, very much for this uh, conversation. I learned again a few more things about what you're doing. And you know, there's an endless amount of work that you're doing that's just eventually is just having a major impact about how we care for patients uh, clinically. So we, we really appreciate your work. Yeah, I will talk about the impact maybe next next time too. Okay. Anyway, thank you very much and we'll talk thank soon. You. Thank, thanks. Right. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Vanya Avkarian, for being on the show today and for giving us an overview of the work that his research lab has been doing relating brain structure and activity to chronic pain. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.